Welcome to Shared Instance, a podcast on iOS development from three iOS developers in Cincinnati, Ohio. I'm Sam Corder from Pinnacle Solutions Group. I'm Alex Argo from A-Star Software. And I'm Alex Robinson from Atomic Robot. So, what's new this week? Well, we have the Apple Watch coming out soon. So we know most likely it's going to be before June, because we've got 6.2 beta, and then we also have 6.3 right behind that. So I feel like... Well, they've told us April. Right, Tim Cook has announced April. Do they have the media event scheduled yet? Nope. I don't believe so. Did you guys see David Smith's uh, possible taglines for the media event? <laughs> no, I missed yep. that. They were all very corny. I I enjoyed them. Yeah, it definitely wasn't the serious one. It's about so, time. <laughs> yeah, watch out, I think. Yeah, it was another one. <laughs> time waits for no one, or time is money, and that is what you're going to need to buy this thing. Yeah. So... Which one of you are going to buy an Apple Watch in this first version? So I am actually very leery of buying this one, this first version, uh, solely because I think it's going to be very expensive, at least from all accounts. And it already doesn't do what Apple wants it to do or wanted it to do. They had to remove the blood pressure, heart activity, and stress level sensors. So it's not as much of a health watch as it used to be. Personally, I'm waiting for version 2. Well, I mean, we know what the entry price is. So you don't have to get the solid gold edition watch or whatever. I mean... Well, it's either that or a new car. I think maybe the watch might be better than a new car. Depends. (laughs) (laughs) So you can have the 350 watch with one payment plan or the 350 a month. For 60 payments. (laughs) Gold watch. I think I'm going to end up getting a watch mostly for testing purposes. We've got a couple clients that want Apple Watch apps um, pretty much at the start. So if no other reason, I'm going to get it for testing. Yeah, I I think I'm going to be getting one too. I, I enjoy my... My pebble that I got when it kickstarted, and it'll be interesting to see, you know, what what Apple's take is on a watch. I think it's kind of interesting that Pebble just announced their their new watch, and they said they're focusing now on notifications and not really apps anymore. They're not getting rid of apps, but it seems like they've found and it's kind of how I use my Pebble too. Is that it's it's more just another way to not have to interact with my phone as opposed to some something I'm constantly interacting with. Well, maybe maybe Apple Watch can do it better. We'll have to see. But those are most of the apps that are out there anyway with the Apple Watch. Most of them are just going to be extensions of an app on your phone. Right. Yeah, that's true. There's not there's not the tight integration on on the Pebble even to the extent that you know the android watches can get so yeah it'll be it'll be cool to see what what kind of stuff that that we'll be able to get with this right so alex are your clients clamoring for things that are possible in the current watch kit or something that might be given to us in june 
I th- yeah, one of the clients I think is just looking to be present on the watch, and the, the nature of their user base is they their hands are probably busy. They're not necessarily going to want to pull out their phone uh, for some functionality because um, they target pilots. Uh, so that they might have an iPad strapped to their leg, but uh, you know, having something on their wrist might be very convenient. Hmm. And then uh, the other client, um, they're probably going to want something a little bit more evolved, uh, something a little higher end on the animation side. I don't think the flipbook style animation is going to cut it for them in the long term. You know, we might be able to do something in the short term, but. Uh, looking forward to having native apps for them with access to something like Core Animation. And that was probably my biggest disappointment when the WatchKit API was released. It seemed like you could do a lot with it, but not quite as much as I was hoping to. Well, I guess we'll wait and see what comes out and how it gets adopted. It's definitely going to be interesting to see how Apple influences that market and will it move from kind of hobby high-end gadget fans to mainstream yeah and what personally i feel like this thing is not going to quite meet apple's internal expectations for what it should be like you know they've already said we can't get the battery life out of it that we want to get we're having to cut back on the number of sensors in it because we can't get the data we want out of them because either people have hairy arms or dry skin and they don't get consistent readings out of that. So I feel like next year's watch will be the one that everybody will actually be able to use. Yeah, I definitely think it's the first-gen iPhone type of experience and that second and third gen is going to be that much better. So I I think I would have some heartburn spending a lot of money getting the higher-end watch, knowing that maybe a year from then there's going to be something that's going to be a lot better, um, a lot thinner, better battery life, better experience overall, if it follows the same path. Right. So sp- speaking of... Uh of the high-end watch, how do you guys feel about what you think the actual price will be? There's been lots of people speculating this week. Do you do you really think it's going to be ten grand or something in that ballpark? I can't imagine that being a large quantity of you know, you know something they would stock in the store. That seems like a special order type of item. Yeah, it'll be from the uh, I Am Rich app to the I Am Rich watch now. <laughs> I can definitely see a market for something like that, but I don't, you know, it's a it's a niche market. But is that going to be the price of the edition watch? I I don't think it's even possible to speculate. I mean, certainly it could get up that high and there's been people who've done mod on mod cases on iPhones and such to add bling uh, that are in the thousands, but I don't know. But we know there's no, like, diamonds or anything. It's just going to be a gold watch. But a very special gold. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you can certainly drop a decent amount of money on a watch, uh, but there's a difference between buying a, a, something like a Rolex 
that's going to be passed down from generation to generation versus an electronic gadget that probably won't function beyond a few years because batteries just don't last and um, just the mechanics of it. And it'll be obsolete, right? Right. Once They're already manufacturing these watches, so that means they're already working on the watch too. So the day, day one when people are buying these $10,000 gold watches, they're buying a relic. Right. If you... You know, you could justify spending $10,000 on a watch that's going to be an heirloom that gets passed down from generation to generation. I don't think you can do that as easily for something like an Apple Watch. Do you think it's possible that it'll, it'll be, like, upgradable? Or, or I don't know, maybe the, the band costs a bunch, but the actual watch part isn't as much, so you can upgrade the just the actual watch part and still have your you know, maybe your $8,000 band or something like that? That's something I was reading today where they're speculating that even the bands will be segregated by line. So you're not going to be able to buy the entry-level watch at 350 and then go out and get the upgraded Milanese band for it because it won't fit or something. Yeah, it'll be, it'll be interesting to see how that how that plays out. Yeah. But I do feel like the third-party manufacturers that are already making bands for these or planning to make them, they'll definitely step up to the plate. I think Apple's already moved on from the watch, and now they're all focused on the car. Yeah. <laughs> that was a jo- joke. Yeah. <laughs> I thought it was a nice little segue. If you believe the rumors, there's been Apple-owned vehicles in the wild doing something um obviously apple has an interest with carplay and and car the car experience but uh i don't know i don't know where they'd go with it it wouldn't be unlike apple to say you know after working with carplay and car manufacturers to say this is just a crap experience we can do better i mean that's where the ipod came from and and some of their other markets but that's quite a bit to to bite off yeah i hope the watch is a nice little evolution in product line similar to the phone was to the ipod whereas the the ipod was definitely a revolution to their product line yeah the, the watch definitely fits their ecosystem but the car will definitely shake things up if that is true or maybe they're just getting people to work on better battery life for the Apple Watch. Yeah, you never know. Uh, you know, <laughs> t- Tesla's often been referred to as the Apple of the automotive in- industry. So, you know, getting designers and engineers from Tesla doesn't seem like that big of a stretch. And quite frankly, they've got the money. So if they want to create a secret lab with a bunch of engineers to experiment with something that will never go to the market. That's their choice. Although it's, I mean, it's not so secret anymore. They've had people, you know, speak to the Wall Street Journal and the New York Times about it. I think there's, they were saying there's like 200 people working on it now. There's, uh, they're like allowed to get up to a thousand people, at least at the stages at right now. 
I mean, it, it seems like it's more than just like a R and D project. It, I mean, for the actual car. Yeah, yeah. There's a Wall Street Journal article that says that that's how many how much Tim Cook has said they can have. There's two hundred people right now. Um, I mean, just looking at some of the hires they've made, there's. I think some of the people from Nine to Five Mac put out an article, and uh, you know they've got a recruiter from uh, Tesla, so who, who's been used to recruiting all these car people. Uh, they've got some people to work on the battery technology. They've got you know some some engineers who specialize in like car mechanic things. I mean, there's there's lots of smoke. And there's there's got to be fire. They're, they're doing something with the car. Yeah, but will it be a self-driving car like what Google is working on or a new Tesla competitor? That's that's definitely up in the air. Yeah, it'll be interesting because I think I've heard that, you know, it, it won't be before 2020 when there'll even be, you know, laws that let you sell self-driving cars and it, that seems like when apple is targeting from some of the rumors uh but that may just be how long it takes to to be able to make a car from not having any of that capability well there's a lot of parts in a phone but there are a huge order of magnitude more parts that go into a car although if it's an electric car it's not nearly as much i mean most a lot of those parts are in like the the, the engine and the, and all those pieces that don't necessarily even need to be there for an electric car. I mean, like you've you've seen the what do they call it the frunk of a Tesla, where the engine normally would be. It's just like a second trunk that's empty space mostly. Hmm. It makes me wonder, you know, if Apple's making a car. Normally, you know, everyone says, uh, you know, the the car industry is a you know really tough industry. Uh, the margins are really low, and it takes a lot of work. I mean, there's an article the the Ford CEO was warning Apple against making cards. And, I mean, it, it's kind of like before they made a phone, most people were like, eh, Apple doesn't need to make a phone. It's a, it's a really tough industry. I think, like, the Palm CEO is like, PC guys are not going to just figure this out. They're not going to walk in and... I mean, you, you've seen what happened, so... Yeah. Do you guys remember those email chains that would go around, like, what if Microsoft made a car? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'll have to dig one of those up for the show notes. And my son told me a joke today, or part of a joke, I guess. If Apple made a car, would it have windows? <laughs> uh-huh. mm, did you ground him for a week for that one? <laughs> Although it does make me wonder, like, when they come into these industries, it's not like, oh, we have a good competitor. They they do it because they think they completely disrupt it. So other than just doing an electric vehicle or, you know, a self-driving vehicle and lots of other people are working on that, like, what is Apple going to do differently with a car that's that makes them think it's worth, you know, going into industry? And you have an industry that really hasn't evolved much in the last you know, 50 or so years, and outside of adding more cup holders 
I mean, it's it's stagnated for the most part. There's, there's, there's vehicles with vacuum cleaners in there now, Alex. That's innovation. That's true. <laughs> <laughs> well, there are cars that park themselves. Yeah. Yeah, and, and now there's a lot of cars with sensors to detect, you know, if somebody's in your blind spot or if you're going to run into to a car in front of you or back into somebody. I mean, there, there's definitely some good stuff going on and uh, in that space. Uh, but there's probably room for a leap in innovation. I don't know if Apple's necessarily great at making leaps in innovation. I think they're great at taking a lot of separate pieces and putting them together for more holistic experience than you know integrating other people's innovations into one great experience. Yeah, that's true. I mean, tablet computers have been around for over a decade, but it wasn't till the iPad came out that it was the exact same thing that, you know, they really caught on. Uh, true, and, and the iPod was really just a packaged-up laptop hard drive. Well, and there's a bunch of crappy MP3 players and stuff. I mean, I had some really horrible, horrible things. Oh, yeah. I, my favorite one was the, do you guys remember the Nomad MP3 player? It was basically, it was a hard drive-based MP3 player, except for it was in the form factor of a CD player. It yeah, was a, wasn't it Creative Labs? The, it was, the Sound yep. Blaster guys. Back when you actually had to put a sound card into your computer. Yep. <laughs> Those were the days. Yeah, so we're coming up on February 25th, the official shutdown of testflightapp.com. You guys all switched over to your competing services? I've moved over a while back, knowing that this day would come. So what did you pick up? I went with Crashlet. Well, to be honest, I, I tried a few. Um, so I signed up for a pro account on Hockey App, and as well as Crashlytics. Um, and to clarify, it's February 26th, not the 25th, for the shutdown. Oh, okay. One more day. Yeah. But, you know, for for the folks that don't know what Test Flight is all about, it's it's a service that came out around the time of iOS four and over there deployment to help developers distribute their apps to internal QA and beta testers. You know, before that, it was a very manual, cumbersome process, and you had to email or somehow share the files and the users would have to install manually via iTunes or some other utility. So it it was a huge leap forward for developers and getting testers on board. Not always perfect, but it was a nice service. And they later added Android support and continued to make the service better. And then Apple acquired TestFlight back in February 2014 and then at WWDC later that year, they announced the integration of TestFlight with iTunes Connect. And they added some really nice features to it as well. Yeah, we haven't at work been able to move over to Apple's TestFlight because we're still supporting iOS 7. Yeah, for me, that's that's one of the big roadblocks uh, for moving to Apple's TestFlight. I mean, it's nice with their version, you can have a thousand users and it's tied to their app ID. You don't have to worry about getting device IDs and 
and creating provisioning profiles every time you add a new tester. So that's a really nice feature. Um, you can also have 25 internal QA testers using Apple's test flight. And one of the biggest complaints I had about test flight in the, the old service is that initial setup for a new tester was kind of hit and miss. When it worked, it worked. Uh, when it didn't, usually took a couple tries and you sometimes had to hold the hand of the person trying to get it set up. Uh, but with the new test flight from Apple, it's a native app and it feels more like the, you know, it's more of the app store type of experience. So less opportunity for failure there. So if it's if it's just the iOS 7 support, are you going to be switching in about a year when you can drop support for iOS 7? I think there's a chance I would. Um, it also doesn't support Android, so when we're building apps that are both Android and iOS, it's nice having a single tool to interface with, and obviously Apple is not really motivated to support Android anytime soon. No, they definitely killed that pretty quickly after they bought TestFlight. Yeah, it wasn't long after TestFlight added Android support that they were acquired and and uh, dropped it. So it was a sad day. Yeah, I was originally pumped about you know Apple's TestFlight as well, uh, but one issue I ran into recently is I was you know working with a, a third party SDK and I was experiencing some issues, uh, and so they basically needed me to send them a test build of my app. Uh, and if I wanted to use Apple's test flight, then I have to wait for it to get reviewed. And review times have been horrendous lately. So even if it was just iOS 8, like I didn't want to give them an internal QA slot because I was working, you know, through some of their support people even. So it'd have to be some developer's Apple ID that's added. Because I think if you're an internal QA tester, you have to have an iTunes Connect account. Yeah, and it's... it's um... I don't think you can reuse the accounts either, so it's a little bit more cumbersome. Yeah, so I'm still not sure what the answer is for that that scenario. It's kind of and maybe not a super common use case, but I've, you know, sending a third party uh, test app. Well, if you have a QA department that has a number of devices sitting around just for testing purposes. Does that count as just the one QA account if they're all using the same Apple ID? Yeah, that would only... Yep. Yeah, only one account would count. Assuming, yeah, you have a bunch of people all using the same device to log in, that seems like a bad idea, but I think it would just count. Yeah, one account for up to however many devices. I think when you have a pool of test devices for an internal QA team, I don't think that's necessarily a bad thing to have it tied to one Apple ID account. Yeah. It seems practical. It's practical. But it, I'll give you that. Unless you're testing, say, core data, iCloud sync or something awful. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that could could be an issue. There's potential I, problems with it. I've also read that uh, with Apple's test flight, you can test in-app purchases uh, using real App Store accounts. It doesn't actually complete the transaction but you can test that experience uh, using the beta builds. Hmm. But I don't think they have crash logging, at least not in the same fashion that uh, 
test flight had before. I think they had the old, they, they still have the old iTunes crash logging. I, I don't think that has been revamped w with test flight. Yeah, so you, definitely would not be enough. So you may still want to have something like Crashlytics for crash logging, which kind of takes us into their offering with Crashlytics beta. So if you're using their crash logging, you might as well give their uh, apps ad hoc distribution a try. But that is limited to the same as the old test flight was, where you had your ad hoc builds and your 100 device limit. Yes, yeah, you don't get the advantages. In a lot of ways, the experience is fairly similar to the old test flight. Uh, it's not quite as feature rich. Uh, for example, you can't ch pick which provisioning profile you want to attach to the archive. It just takes whatever the archive was built with and a few things like that. Um, I thought it was a little bit easier for onboarding new users in my, when I, I've used it. I have not run into an issue um, like I have with TestFlight in the past. So far, everybody that I've brought on to Crashlytics Beta has gotten in without a hitch. But it is still a web clip. Uh, for the app on the device, um, it, it's a fairly similar workflow. It just I, we haven't run into the same issues with it yet. We've run into other issues though, but in most part, we've worked through those issues. I'm amazed at Crashlytics because for a company that focuses on the mobile experience so much, their actual mobile site for Fabric and Crashlytics is horrible it's really just the desktop running on your phone yeah i don't think it's a very large team the nice thing is it's backed by twitter uh so i don't think it's going to go away anytime soon uh which w was kind of the concern with some of the other competitors out there that they're small they're either going to go out of business or get acquired so i think crashlytics will be around for a while but i, I do think the the beta team is pretty small. The support's been really good. They've been very patient and helpful when I've needed to contact them. But you know, on the other hand, I ha I have had to reach out to them on a few occasions to figure out how to integrate Crashlytics beta into our build process and resolve issues with um, some of the more technical details like if you you build servers using a non-native Git client, it can't handle the symbolic links that they build into the framework, so it causes some issues that are pretty hard to troubleshoot. Yeah, it's kind of unfortunate. It, it seems like with TestFlight, they have the desktop client you could use if you wanted to submit an app. Um, and Crashlytics has the same thing, but it seems like they're kind of pushing that as the the main way to integrate it um, versus Crashlytics where you have to run the app to, to submit it. There's not, there's not really support or even like, it seems like an intention of people using it on build servers, which I would think most people who are using it with any, you know, amount of regularity would, would want to be doing yeah. it from a build server. I think they're trying to make it a, dumbed down experience so if you're on android 
you use the Ant task or you use the Android Studio plugin. If you're on iOS, you use the Mac plugin. And, you know, I, I guess that's fine if you don't have to go between the different platforms. But when you do, you've got to go into different plugins in order to distribute the app on the for each platform. Yeah, I feel like the experience is definitely geared towards the lone developer, the solo developer who's putting out builds rather I, than the, the team environment. I think they do support Ant and Maven on the Android side. I don't know if you can use the same tasks within an iOS project. I don't think so because I believe that it's taking your your dsims and then uploading those so they can have symbolicated crash reports which those other things those other the ant plugin for instance probably is not aware of that kind of thing yeah actually it's a lot better on android um i'm using the the gradle plugin right now and it it's only in gradle there's i don't have the plugin installed on android studio or anything but i can i can still do everything i need to do with crashlytics from just from a plain old Gradle build. So I, I hope they get iOS up to the same speed as Android. I did reach out to their support team about it, and it sounded like they were looking at options uh, f- for the future. But I know they also, with Fabric and some of the other things going on, I don't know where that falls on the priority list for them. I think the more people who ask for it, the better. Maybe I need to file a radar, so to say, <laughs> so to speak. <laughs> Wouldn't hurt. So that kind of brings us to the other contender worth considering is Hockey App. And they've been around for a while. Uh, they were a small kind of... They're they're unique in that it's a paid service, or at least it it was until recently. I don't know if that's changed. I believe it's still paid. So they recently were acquired by Microsoft. Uh, so they've kind of already gone through that acquisition phase. I don't... I haven't read anything yet to see if Microsoft has stated the intended direction for it. Uh, but the nice thing about Hockey App is it is cross-platform. It is fairly feature-rich. It does have crash reporting built in. We use it for Android builds on a couple of the client projects, and it works reasonably well. It doesn't feel necessarily as polished as Crashlytics or Testlight. You know, it doesn't feel like they spit. Crashlytics feels like they spend a lot of time on the UI design and making it feel fun and friendly. Hockey App is very utilitarian in its current state, but not bad. Yeah, I remember it used to be... Do they still have the open source version of it? I think that's still out there. I haven't really okay. given that a try. I, I think it's, I remember it was just like a you know really bare bones like PHP app. They had that in the crash reporting... I forget what that was called. Um, but yeah, it's interesting that Microsoft acquired them. And, and I think if it was the Microsoft of maybe, you know, five or ten years ago, we'd be more worried about if they were going to keep it around for all the different platforms. But it seems like Microsoft has kind of gone the route of, all right, we, we realize we need to be on all these other platforms in, in mobile because Windows Mobile is not it. So I wouldn't be too worried about them going away. Uh, yeah, I think Microsoft has done some pretty good things that have been fairly open with, like, the Windows Azure uh, mobile services is very open and 
you know they support Node and as well as their their platform. Uh, it works really well on iOS for those who have used it. I think I think Microsoft, at least on the mobile side and the services side, have done some good things. Do they support more than Node? I I would have to go back and look. I believe you can do .NET and Node. I don't know if there's any other options. They don't have like a platform as a service for any other languages, but they they do let you just run straight up VMs like you would infrastructure as a service, like you know EC2 or something like that. Okay. And I can run a Linux or yep. Windows. Yeah. All right. And they have a bunch of prepackaged ones for for various use cases too. Like I think they have a prepackaged MongoDB, um, SQL Server, Linux course. instance, and stuff. Yeah, it's pretty robust. They have push notifications and and some other things in there that are are fairly nice. Definitely worth looking at if you're looking for a backend for an app. We'll have to save that for a later podcast. So. My experience with hockey apps crash reporting is that the crash logs aren't as nice, nicely rendered as, say, Crashlytics is. What have you guys found? To be honest, we even when we use hockey app for distributions, we're still using Crashlytics for crash reporting. Okay. Yeah, it's just such a good... I mean, even their analytics are pretty good, but they have a, a pretty pretty compelling you know website to to find and look through that stuff especially you know better than apple or google's crash reporting solutions i mean they collect that stuff for you without having to do anything but people still go to crashlytics from what i can tell i believe the google one will only collect it if the user has said that it's okay to collect it whereas crashlytics and hockey will just ignore that yeah i think well, that's apple, true apple has the same thing right and that's why you want Something like Crashlytics is so you get a more comprehensive view of what's going on with your app. As long as you use your powers for good. Yep. Yeah, I was just going to say, that sounds, <laughs> oh, you can use all these other things because they ignore what the users want. <laughs> I think one last thing worth mentioning about Hockey App is they do have a fairly robust command line uh, that they call Puck. So, you know, where Crashlytics isn't necessarily the easiest thing to integrate into your continuous integration server. It looks like Hockey App is is fairly open. I am curious, you know, there's a recent headline about the iOS public beta. I saw the headline, but I didn't really dig into that. Did either of you read much about that change? So I've read a little bit, and it sounds like Apple is going to start a public beta for iOS 8.3. And I believe that the time frame was in March. So I'm assuming they're going to handle it similar to the way they handled the Yosemite public beta this past summer, where they had public betas and then they had the developer preview versions, which came out much more frequently than the betas. And supposedly the there's going to be a much lower limit on these beta testers, something like 100,000 instead of a million. And the other thing I heard was that they're going to do this for iOS 9 as well. And it's all part of their, their quality initiative. I think they've seen that 
their quality has slipped re- recently because they've had to move at such a fast pace. Right. You're, you've got major revisions every year, and the platforms are only getting more and more complex. So I, I can definitely see, even with hundreds of thousands of developers, you still don't test every scenario. Well, definitely not. There's not a lot of developers that put the early previews on their daily driver phone either. Right. And I don't know if developers are the best representation of the average consumer. You know, they're not necessarily using the platform in the same way. But I don't know. It's probably there's there's overlap, but I I think it's a good thing that they get these betas in front of more people. I'm curious how app developers are going to handle this because in the past, at least 8.3 shouldn't be a problem, but 9 might end up being a large problem because developers are going to be forced to make sure their apps are 9 compliant and not crashing much earlier than they're used to. Yeah, I think we saw that with Yosemite. I think I had several apps that were updating during the beta because people were running into issues. Now, were those App Store apps or were those non-App Store apps? Honestly. I think a lot of a lot of mine were non-App Store apps. Yeah, I think the ones that come to mind were non-App Store apps. Now, if I remember correctly, you couldn't leave a review if you're running the app on the beta version of Yosemite for the Mac App Store, if, that, if I remember correctly. And iOS, iOS was the same way, even like if you were just a developer, because I think there's a lot of people who aren't developers who are like illegitimately getting their hands on these betas. <laughs> I think there's whole sites of you know people who would create developer accounts and sell your adding your UID or whatever to to their account so that you know anyone could get get the betas of iOS. So I, I would assume we'll have you know, the review protection, but I think I was wondering about the same thing, Sam. It, like, will they let you submit linked against the, the iOS 9 SDK? That seems kind of dangerous. I wouldn't expect that, but I would expect developers to go and maybe create workarounds for their app in the uh, using the 8 SDK, but something that won't crash in the 9 on iOS 9. Yeah. So I mean, we've seen changed, that with... I was going to say, when they change the rotation API again, and your <laughs> app starts crashing, you want to be able to address it somehow. Except that you probably won't, because it'll be a whole new method that won't be in the 8 SDK. They've been somewhat good about uh, making those work differently, depending on what SDK you build against. But like even with iOS 7 and iOS 8, I remember seeing apps that, you know, will fix, fix bugs if, if they can uh, in iOS 8. They just either hide it with other fixes or don't say this is a fix for iOS 8, although some of those even got through. So it seems like they've been getting more lenient with that. Hope they get even more lenient. If yeah. there's going to be all these people. I recall running into a, a backwards compatibility issue with going from six to seven, where 
seven had just totally dropped a, a constant. And so our, our, my day jobs app was crashing on launch on seven. And my least favorite time of the year is that kind of twilight between the new version being out and stable and the old version. So if you build against the new version, you get one class of bugs. If you build against the old version, you get a different class of bugs on the new iOS. So, you know, you end up waiting or living a life of pain for a few months while you wait for the, the new iOS to be stable and fix those issues. So with any hope, this public beta will get most of those issues resolved before it's a true production issue for us. And if this release is like the rumor sites say, where it's more of a bug fix stabilization release, then it shouldn't be so bad. I remember with 8 coming out, we had some 11th hour defects in our app that didn't even get solved until the very last uh, preview release that came out during the announcement day. I still think there's going to be lots of changes that that are in the whatever the next version of iOS is. I mean, even with Snow Leopard, they they mostly touted it as a non-user feature release, but there were some user features, and there is a lot of under-the-hood stuff. Oh, definitely under-the-hood. I mean, GCD? <laughs> <laughs> it's kind, kind of, of a big deal. <laughs> a little bit of a game-changer. Yeah. Nothing too much. So what topic do we have next? I think I think that's about it. Uh, yeah. Does anyone have any any picks of the week? I threw Core Animator out there as as a new commercial product uh, distributed through the App Store for as a visual designer for animations. And I was I was looking at that. It looked very slick. It kind of reminds me of the Flash Designer with the keyframe. With the keyframe animations, and it exports to Swift or Objective-C. Right, it's all core animation-based, right? Right, and it, it looks pretty powerful. To be honest, I've looked at tools have, that have done core graphics type of code generation in the past, and there's some good ones out there, but a lot of them assume like an origin and put some some magic numbers into the code, which make it a little bit hard to integrate it into your app without going through some effort to replace those magic numbers with variables so you can easily move things around. Um, But I'm definitely taking a look at Core Animator, and I've been doing more with Core Animations. So this this looks intriguing to me. So so my pick for this week is uh, Franken-Cover. It's a little bit cheaper uh, than... Then your pick, Alex. Uh, it's it's free. Um, it's it's basically a code coverage uh, reporter for iOS and OS ten, uh, and it it's called Franken Cover because literally it's just a, a nice wrapper for about five or six or seven commands spanning at least two different languages that that need to. I'll be run in order to to get some nice code coverage output from your your iOS or Mac OS 10 projects. Um, 
the the instructions they have on their website to to run it basically say call this groovy script and pull it in uh from their website which is on github um but it also works just fine if you download the groovy script and and save a copy it off for yourself uh I somewhat selfishly picked this this week because I started using it in my projects um, and found some some bugs, so I I made some contributions to it. So it was also my open source contribution of the week. <laughs> All right. So did they um, accept your pull request? They did, and I had a bug that I caused with my pull request, so they accepted a second one. <laughs> <laughs> you didn't have the unit tests around it, huh? Yep. Yeah, well, yeah, that's the reason I was getting this code coverage tool. Uh, but we can talk about that more on our continuous integration podcast, which we'll get to at some point. Um, but yeah, that's 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 my pick. Anyone else? Sure. Uh, my pick is a blog article by, and I know I'm going to mess this guy's name up, but Ole Begemon. It's a blog post about core data concurrency debugging. So in the past, Apple has provided a way to do core data debugging for Mac OS, but you had to install a special pre-built binary of the library, and it was very difficult and cumbersome. And with iOS 8, they've added a flag that allows you to pass that in at runtime, and then it'll throw an exception whenever you violate various rules that Apple has put out on core data concurrency. So if you use a core data object that's bound in one context on a thread and you use that object in another thread, it'll throw an exception for you. And it's very interesting because at my day job, we use Banshee Record 2.2 and it actually doesn't get past the app did finish launching since they, the way that Magical Records sets up the core data stack actually violates this. I think that version predates the nested context concept that they added. 2.2 is the latest released version, and it does support okay. that. Okay, I'm wrong. Yeah. Um, 2.3, which is currently in beta, does fix this. It may have been two. It may have been the two O um, line that added the nested context, but I'm just going from memory, and yeah. not a very obviously not a very good memory. I'm not. I'm not really sure either. I know that there have been significant changes to Magical Record in its history and Core Data as well. It sounds like if you're using Core Data, it's will be definitely useful. Yeah, or just switch everything over to key archives. <laughs> <laughs> Do it the hard way. Thanks for <laughs> listening to Shared Instance. Please rate us on iTunes if you like this podcast. Otherwise, why are you listening? <laughs> <laughs> hey, Sam, where can they find you if they want to learn more about you? All right, well, I am at Sam Quarter on Twitter. If you're looking for uh, for me, you can find me at Alex Argo on Twitter. Nobody's looking for you. Yeah, you're probably right. 
You can find me at AJ Robinson on Twitter or my company at Atomic underscore Robot. And also you can find our podcast on Twitter as at Shared Inst. Uh, please tweet us, follow us. We would love to hear from you. And also, we're on iTunes now. If you can, please help us get the word out by rating us on iTunes. Yeah, just as long as we don't all end up with clippies on our phone. <laughs> I see you're about to do a podcast. Can I help you? Everybody could use a little bit of clippy in their life. Come on.